you're going to see it start out international. You're going to see most of the users in Asia. You're going to see most of the users in Eastern Europe. And then as you kind of build that side of the game, the labor side, you're going to see the capital side flow in and, and kind of build the sustainable game economy. And I don't think the question is like whether you can build a crypto game that works. Like there's no rules that say you can't. And what we're doing on DeFi is kind of like an early iteration of a crypto game anyways. I think the question is, can you build a sustainable economy? Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. The question today, are crypto games making a comeback? So we did a bunch of are episodes we back? on crypto. Yeah, I don't know. We're going to find out. We did a bunch of episodes on crypto gaming last hype cycle. And uh, retrospectively, it was a little bit early, David. But uh, Hey, that's now, what we say, time, front running the opportunity, right? Yeah, I think so. And uh, this time, things By are a whole little bit cycle. different. <laughs> we got cheap block space. We got better wallets. We've got games that are maybe actually fun to play. We've got Vance Spencer and Michael Anderson on the podcast from Framework. They are investors in crypto gaming. They're on the frontier here, and they're here to make the case for why the time for crypto gaming is now. Crypto games are making a comeback. A few things we talk about. What's the state of crypto gaming as we head into 2022? Number two, why our guests think now is the time for crypto games to take off? Number three, which chain is going to win all of this crypto gaming activity? Is it Solana? Is it Avalanche? Is it an Ethereum layer two? There's actually a pretty compelling answer here. Number four, we talk about this one simple trick to route around iOS Store and Google Play Store, our current gatekeepers on the crypto gaming market. And number five, if everything they say comes to pass, the big question is, what does this mean for our assets? What does this mean for Ether, for DeFi tokens, for Layer 2 block space? David, you're sticking your finger in the air, pointing to the sign up. Why yeah, is this episode significant up. to you? Uh, I think um, just adjacently, the story of framework, uh, Vance Spencer's like bull case for DeFi episode 10, I think with us really early was one of the strongest articulations for DeFi. And that's where framework as a VC firm, like cut their teeth and also made a killing, right? Investing in things that you, you will be familiar with back when it was super contrarian post 2017 ICO mania, things like Ave, Synthetics, Chainlink that just rocketed out of the bear market of 2018 to 2019. And so this is where Framework got their start and now is a very large VC firm, like a large assets under management, large, uh, like hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think the story of like how Vance and Michael like went from DeFi and the last bull market into gaming was because that they, they had such a strong performance that they were like, well, now we have so much capital and we need to deploy it into a sector. And right now, the rest of crypto is not large enough for us to deploy our sector. So we need something larger to deploy it to. And they came to the conclusion of gaming. Not, not exclusively, but gaming is something that they have been investing in for their, their thesis for a number of years now. Because gaming is like a way bigger industry than crypto. Uh, and so that could actually absorb some of the investments that they need to make in this space. And now, two years later, some of these investments are starting to bear fruit. This is my quick like TLDR history of framework from my perspective. Uh, and I think it makes sense if when we get to the part of like why gamers and crypto people are like really similar. If you believe that thesis, it makes sense that gaming is the next big frontier for crypto. Uh, if that story tracks with reality, then framework will have themselves set up because gamers, like Vance said, they're always online. They're familiar with digital, digitally native things. Uh, they've got 
technical chops. They've got computers. Uh, and so all of these ingredients are coming together. Uh, if you believe the thesis that Vance Brenser and Michael Anderson are about to make you very bullish on. And uh, most importantly, maybe there's 3 billion of them out yeah. there, the gamers yeah. <laughs> out there that could become uh, crypto users. Guys, we're going to get right to the episode. But first, we disclose both David and I own some IMX tokens. And of course, you got to know, Michael and Vance, they are venture capitalists. So they have a fund that invests in crypto gaming. So of course, they're going to be bullish mm-hmm. on crypto gaming, a particular set of assets. Guys, let's get right to the conversation. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible, including our number one recommended crypto exchange, the way you get into crypto. That is opening an account on Kraken. Go check them out. Kraken knows crypto. Kraken's been in the crypto game for over a decade. And as one of the largest and most trusted exchanges in the industry, Kraken is on the journey with all of us to see what crypto can be. Human history is a story of progress. It's part of us, hardwired. We're designed to seek change everywhere, to improve, to strive. And if anything can be improved, why not finance? Crypto is a financial system designed with the modern world in mind. Instant, permissionless, and 24-7. It's not perfect, and nothing ever will be perfect. But crypto is a world-changing technology at a time when the world needs it the most. That's the Kraken mission, to accelerate the global adoption of cryptocurrency so that you and the rest of the world can achieve financial freedom and inclusion. Head on over to kraken.com bankless to see what crypto can be. Not investment advice, crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc., PVI, doing business as Kraken. You know Uniswap as one of the largest decentralized protocols with over $1.7 trillion of trading volume, but Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap X is the newest product from Uniswap Labs, which aggregates liquidity across the ecosystem to give you the best DeFi trading experience. The best part? It's gas-free and MEV protected. The best prices? Zero gas and MEV protection all rolled into one app. So head over to app.uniswap.org, click the gear icon on the swap page and make sure that Uniswap X is toggled on. And if zero gas trading on Uniswap wasn't enough for you, the Uniswap app is now available on both iOS and Android. Start swapping seamlessly with products from the most trusted team in DeFi. Visit app.uniswap.org to get started today. Introducing GMX V2, the deepest on-chain futures market to trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and leading altcoins. With the launch of GMX V2, enjoy the best of both worlds. Lightning fast trade execution, competitive pricing without having to compromise on custody. With 150 billion trades settled on-chain and over 500 million in liquidity across Arbitrum and Avalanche, GMX is the preferred destination for DeFi traders and community liquidity providers. Right now, over $12 million in Arbitrum Arbitrum grants are being distributed to traders, LPs, and developers building on GMX V2. There's never been a better opportunity to experience the future of crypto trading. GMX and its ecosystem of integrations continue to move us forward. Your wallet, your trades, your choice. Trade on GMX with the exclusive bankless discount code in the show notes and benefit from 10% lower fees. Try it out now at app.gmx.io. Bankless Nation, I couldn't be more excited to introduce you once again to Vance Spencer and also Michael Anderson for the first time who lead Framework Ventures. Longtime Bankless listener should be familiar with Vance. We've had him on the show a couple of times. This is Michael's first time on the podcast, but they're both at Framework. Michael, welcome. Vance, welcome back. It's good to have you guys. Thanks for having us. Hey, uh, we want to dive into a topic we haven't talked about in a while but I think uh, it's going to be an important topic. It's gone dormant for a while, and this is the topic of, of crypto gaming. I can tell you we've explored this thoroughly, though, okay? And it was probably most like um, two years ago 
Let me let me read you some episode titles to get us kicked off here. The Crypto Gaming Revolution. This is with Ariana Simpson. The Emerging Metaverse. This is with the folks at Gal- Galaxy Ventures. Web3 Gaming 101, Amy Wu. The Dawn of Crypto Gaming. We had Robbie on. What's real about crypto gaming? This was all like two years ago when it felt like the crypto narr- uh, gaming narrative was like, really taking off and you know if you remember that time axie was hitting like all-time highs and it had grown from like i don't know 10 million dollars in market cap to multiple billions uh since that time things have really quieted down and i want to find out from you guys uh do games still need crypto like why like what's the story with games and crypto has it died is it is it set for a resurgence give us the take we'll start with you mike I mean, I think the, the thesis here is really simple. Um, if you have two games and they're the exact same game, the same gameplay, the same game mechanics, one of them is in a digital ecosystem like a PlayStation or an Xbox or, or a computer that we're used to playing and have been for the last you know couple of decades. The other is the exact same game played on the exact same venue, but you actually own parts of the game, whether it be your characters or resources or attributes within the game. And you put that up against anyone who's a, you know, an avid gamer and you say, do you want to play this game or the other game? The one with ownership or the one without? I think just about everybody would say, okay, if it's the exact same game and I'm going to enjoy it the exact same way, I want ownership. And I think we haven't, what we've been waiting for and, and taking it back to what you were talking about, Ryan, is you know, two years ago, we didn't really have any fun to play games. There were, there were sort of like random number generator based games with two-dimensional artwork um, and what's happened since is there's been multiple years, hundreds of millions of dollars invested into games and game ecosystems that have been developing and gestating and are now kind of set to launch. Um, you know, and games are, you know, really, really, you know, massive markets, but they're also really hard to build. And so I, I'm excited just because, you know, we've been waiting and investing and building, and it's kind of time for that to come to the forefront. So, Michael, let me uh, let me take the skeptic take for for just a minute because we we started this podcast on maybe a skeptical kind of lens, and I don't think we'll we'll, we'll conclude there. But we got to start there because there's a lot of questions. You said that if you give any two games, one game you can sell your assets, you have ownership of your assets. Gamers will prefer that rather than the other, right? That was my thinking too. I I legitimately thought this. I think I still think this, and yet we haven't seen that played out because if you call that thing an NFT. Right now, we've we've seen the gaming community kind of rebel against this. I, I must have watched like an hour and a half long video about how NFTs and games are just like it's the end of gaming. Uh, gamers like consistently all sorts of threats. I know gamers like to complain, but there's there's a consistent chant of we hate NFTs. So it seems like if you call them NFTs, we might be in trouble. Maybe there's a, a branding problem. And then there's also this other this other accompanying thing, which is like some gamers will tell you, now nah, if you start monetizing it. It becomes too real for me, and it becomes more like a like a job. And you actually take the fun. I, I go to games to escape. These have been two two of the persistent, uh, I think, themes from from gamers. Is one is this anti NFT thing. They see it as exploitative, maybe. And another is like if you inject economics into it, then it becomes like a job, and I start to lose the the virtual you know escapism element of my games. So what's your take on that? I've got a take on it. So like asking the, uh, you know, the people who play or who like go to Kotaku, which is like a, a game rating website, who play like super intense games like Dark Souls or Final Fantasy, asking them if crypto gaming is real or the right thing to do is like asking traditional finance if DeFi is, is interesting. <laughs> it's just it's just like not the right segment. It's not the right job to be done. The real answer of 
you know, like who's, and it's not about like if crypto needs gaming or if gaming needs crypto, it's what users want. And I tweeted this out a few days ago, but you know, when I was early in the NBA Top Shot Discord, it was filled with people trying to turn $5 into $10 or people trying to turn their time into any amount of money. And if you think about like the crypto use cases that we have today, like DeFi is like a power user segment. NFTs are kind of this whole other thing. Games are really the only thing that can fulfill this need of like, you know, I've got some money, I've got some time, I'm trying to play a game, I want to have some ownership. And sure, like the people who play like Gears of War or Final Fantasy, like they're not going to want the NFTs. But the people who are playing Candy Crush, which is frankly most of the gaming market, the people who are overseas who don't have the same access to, you know, economic opportunity, like those are going to be at least the first cohort of people that try and use these games. And you're going to see it start out international. You're going to see most of the users in Asia. You're going to see most of the users in Eastern Europe. And then as you kind of build that side of the game, the labor side, you're going to see the capital side flow in and, and kind of build the sustainable game economy. And I don't think the question is like whether you can build a crypto game that works. Like there's no rules that say you can't. And what we're doing on DeFi is kind of like an early iteration of a crypto game anyways. I think the question is, can you build a sustainable economy? And that's kind of like where the discussion gets more nuanced and more interesting. Like, I don't think anybody wants to recreate Axie. It's just like financial napalm for retail. It just doesn't work. What you do want, though, is something that looks and feels like a game that you might play where you earn some money, but you also really like playing it. Um, and that goes on in perpetuity. And that means probably less reflexive token economics, but it doesn't mean taking them out as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a lot of just what the resonated with me in the the early days of, of gaming like every single game establishes its own economy right and there, there's like the idealized like every you get ownership you get sovereignty as a player you you have your own assets and this is one of the reasons why the idea around crypto gaming kind of took off way way back when i'm wondering if you i'm hoping you guys can kind of just like download us on the undercurrents that have been flowing in the crypto gaming space over the last two years, because most people, including myself, have been largely like tapped out of it. Uh, and uh, Michael, I think a bit of your answer was like, yo, building a game is is long and hard. So it's going to be a while until the games come to market. Uh, but I think we're starting to see some games come to market. So if I had been tapped in for the last two years, uh, and I would imagine this space has been dominated by devs, game devs, building dev stuff, doing game game dev stuff, uh, how have they been interfacing with crypto? What does it mean to be a crypto game versus our expectations that we were left with post Axie Infinity? Like, what what are the undercurrents that are uh, being established by some of the game devs right now? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, so I, I think there's kind of two ways of looking at this. There's sort of the the financial capital um, and the amount of money that it takes to actually build a game, and then there's the technology. And maybe I'll start with the tech, and and we could talk about the financial side. But the tech side. You know, within any ecosystem um, right now, within crypto, within Web3, it's exceedingly hard. It's much harder than what your average application is, whether it's, you know, you're using it for payments, you're using it for DeFi, you're using it for any of, you know, the different ecosystems. You have to be pretty knowledgeable about MetaMask or whatever wallet solution you're, you're using. You have to be knowledgeable about what network you're on. You have to bridge assets over. It's an exceedingly difficult process, even today and, you know, at the end of 2023. Gamers are not going to be able to put up with this. Gamers are also not going to be able to put up with any sort of system where every single time they need to do a transaction on chain, they have to pay a little bit of gas, even if that gas is one cent or one tenth of one penny. That's just not going to be something that's feasible. So the two major improvements, I would say, on the technology side are account abstraction, where you don't actually have to pay the gas yourself as a user, and then 
having the the ecosystems where you're abstracting away the blockchain elements via a unified wallet experience. And you know, historically, you know, when we talk to game developers, the the biggest impediment to growth for them uh, or their forecasted growth is what they call the wallet wall, where you get hit with this MetaMask or Wallet Connect type ecosystem when you just go to sign up for the game. It has to be as simple as username, password, email, password, just like every other application. And so we have solved over the last few years, there are a number of solutions that have gone out and solved this, this problem, whether it be infrastructure providers or you know wallet solutions themselves or games who have taken it upon themselves to build these solutions into their ecosystems. But I, I'd say that is sort of the the clearing of the path of opportunity for these games to actually get real usage, actually get real gamers. And then, you know, to to take it to the financial side, you have to have tens of millions of dollars just to be able to build these games. You know, and we can talk about it further, but um, you know, we're recording this on the eve of when Alluvium is is going to announce or going to launch their open beta via the Epic Game Store. I mean, they've spent tens of millions of dollars and they have hundreds of people building this game over the last 3 years. There's sort of a, a an opportunity that if you want to have a game, you had to go back two years with all that capital, with all that time, and all those people, and build it. And and I think that's you know just one thing that is a blocker for anybody who hasn't been able to do that. When it comes to games, there's just like a massive spectrum, right? There's like the AAA games that require a pretty fancy GPU built by some of the studios that we all know and love. And I think this is kind of where Illuvium is or in the sphere of like, you know, very elegant graphics with a lot of development time. And then there's on the other end of the spectrum, the mobile player Candy Crush. Uh, where is Web3 crypto gaming assets interfacing on this spectrum more or less? Is it like lumpy? Uh, is Illuvium kind of a special case? Is it more to what Vance was talking about where it's further down on the cheaper game end of the spectrum, if I'm allowed to call mobile games kind of the cheaper end? Like it, where where's the distribution here? So Illuvium has uh, a mobile app game that is kind of like a version of like SimCity slash like Clash of Clans. Um, and that's for kind of the casual enjoyer of the game. Then they have the overworld, which is kind of like GTA on an alien planet but you're mining resources and you're mining characters that you can then play in the arena, which is kind of like the classic Pokemon arena battle. Um, games are going to start at kind of every end of the spectrum, generally. Like we've seen people who are just building the the mobile fast casual side. We've seen people who are just building the super intense, you know, like crazy, like Dark Souls, Final Fantasy, uh, like GTA, like Overworld. Um, we've seen people start with just like a TFT battler. I think the, you know, Eventually, you're going to need all three as a game to address these different audiences and to make your economic loops make sense. Um, but I think the key thing is just like the IP needs to be compelling. Like if you're playing, you know, uh, Clash of Clans or like, you know, let's say uh, Candy Crush with a token. There's not really a lot of expansiveness to that. The game kind of ends and starts like right kind of in your in your pocket. Like there's not anything that would compel you to use or transact with that asset. Um, and in many ways, it kind of mirrors like the birth of Ethereum. Like, what, what is Ethereum? It's a community of developers. We've built really strong IP around the core values, around the functioning of the system, around the mini games that exist on chain. And that's kind of what I think the best games are going to do as well. Like, I think, you know, Alluvium started from a perspective of, like, what would Pokemon look like if it was Web3? Um, and you have, you know, the characters, you have the mining, you have the SimCity builder, you can loop it all together with the economics. The token is the thing that unifies everything, just like ETH, the asset, does to the Ethereum network and the developer community. That's what's going to make these games stand out. 
I don't think it's necessarily the best game wins. I think there's a certain quality threshold that you need to get to. But the thing that's going to make these things like massive, interesting economy is the IP. Um, and to Michael's point, like, let's think about, you know, whose opportunity this is. You needed to have started building, you know, a few years ago, if you're going to launch in the next year. There's probably 10 teams that have done that. Uh, you need to have a couple hundred million, you know, of, of those 10 teams, there's probably five who've done that. And then you need to actually have really compelling IP and a strong token economic flip flywheel. Of those five teams, there's maybe a couple. And so I think a lot of our thesis with you know how at least Web3 gaming plays out initially is that there's going to be a huge first mover advantage, just like there was with DeFi. Um, and you know some of that is because you're going to have the ability to bootstrap the economy. But another part of that, which is different than DeFi, is like the next wave of people who are going to chase you are probably going to launch in like two to three years. So there's going to be like lumpy success in Web3 gaming, but it's going to spur you know, this like multi-year process of games getting funded, getting built, and then launching. Um, so that's kind of how we think it'll play out. All right. Can, can we talk about like the, the, the impediments or the blockers so far and like just update us on kind of the, again, the last that David and I probably left this was more in the Axie era, right? And you're still kind of playing with your MetaMask browser and it was, was kind of clunky and all these things. T tell me about a modern experience, like something, something like Alluvium. So first of all, it's in the Epic Store, right? So it's in the Epic Games store. So that is like much more native than something like Axie ever was from a distribution perspective. And then tell me about like the wallet experience. If I'm just a casual gamer, I just don't know anything about holding my private keys or like MetaMask. What's my experience? And then if you, if you could tell us about kind of the front facing experience and then also like for the crypto native who's listening to this, uh, what parts are actually crypto? So when you said Alluvium has its own kind of asset that's like ETH for its own economy, what is that? An ERC-20? Is that on some layer two somewhere? Is that on its own side chain? And we're talking about like these NFT assets, like where are they stored? Could, could you just walk through what a modern game like Alluvium actually looks like right now? Yep. Um, so first off, Alluvium is built on Immutable X, okay. which is a which is a application specific blockchain built by Starkware, and I think this is kind of the the example of the abstraction becoming you know the real important component of the tech, of the tech stack. Most people who play Alluvium should never even know you know what Immutable X is or that it's built on Starkware. The way that you enter into the ecosystem is another product called Passport that is built by the Immutable team. And think of Passport as truly your passport across all the different games that are built on the Immutable platform. And the Immutable platform has the Stark, uh, Starkware instances of the games that are built on top of them, Olivian being one of them. They also have a ZK EVM instance that they're starting uh, that they're launching in January. That's where most of the other games will be built. And then they'll have the opportunity for games that get big enough to actually have their own app chains. But you know, once again, this is like what type of database is your favorite social media application using? Nobody should actually ever know that. They just care about the product and the experience itself. The Passport is the unifying layer of value that connects across all of these different game ecosystems. And once again, it's sign up, email, password, username, password, and you put money or value into that passport experience where you can then use that to go off and buy or, or you know, transact. Um, but in the Alluvium case, you're not actually ever doing anything if you don't have to, if you don't want to. And so I personally play the city builder. I can start playing the city builder without ever having to buy anything or spend any money. I can just start farming resources 
and then build up over time. If I want to expedite the process, I would be able to buy something, speed up the building, speed up the process, earn more resources in that process. But that's you know kind of the the normal experience that you would expect with any digital game. If I was to go onto the Epic Game Store right now and download any game, it'd be user email, uh, username, email, password to sign up. It would be you know me putting in my credit card just in the same way that you have with Passport, um, or I could fund it from another source and then you know start playing and start buying things. So the Passport is kind of like a wallet for uh, crypto. The Passport is exactly it's a wallet that connects across all the different games within the immutable ecosystem. And, and we're talking about immutable right now just because Olivium is is topic du jour. But um, you know, there are other ecosystems that are building, you know, games and and um, you know other platforms, other blockchains that have similar type products. Okay. So so the experience for the the typical uh, gamer is going to actually feel very similar to like traditional games then, right? There's not going to be this this wallet wall, this crypto learning curve that we've we've seen in the past with this generation of games. Is that what you're saying? No, no high gas fees either. Like actually, no high was gas on, fees. actually was on L one, you know, for, for a while, right? And then they they, they did their side chain. There was a hack, all sorts of things, right? And and you know they built the L two, and then they built the bridge, and then the bridge got like you know we're like so far away from that <laughs> point. Like it was just a complete dong show for a long time. And to to kind of like the opener that you put to us, you know, you've done all these podcasts about crypto gaming and. You know they were early, and we're we're definitely guilty of that. We were excited about it, um, but like you can't really judge it yet. Like we haven't seen any games launch. Okay, and so, so like you know you have to defer your judgment. I don't think you can be bearish on Web three gaming. I think you can just say it hasn't happened yet, but we haven't had any games launch, and we have all these things: the UI, the low cost blockchains, the ability to abstract them away. Like the the proof points get stronger. As we go on. Okay, now now link this. So now the crypto native kind of understands this, right? So I understand the backing of, of how this works. It's on Immutable, so it's a layer two. You've got this passport thing, but it's basically like a, like a wallet and you own all of your own assets, whether that's all of the tokens in these ecosystems or the, the NFTs, like skins and items, all of these things, right? So I, I get that. Now for the gaming you know, individual who is just like new to crypto, okay, tell me guys, how is this, why... What benefits am I getting from the blockchain underneath all of this? All right, so like I can kind of get that same experience with with other games. Like it feels, I mean, how do I feel the ownership of my own assets? Can I go take these assets and like bring them into another world? Can I like go onto like Ethereum layer one and like I don't know sell them in a Uniswap market? It, it, like if I want. So now talk to the gamer and, and what are the the benefits of being on a blockchain rather than a central database? frankly just the the marketplace capabilities of being able to sell these different assets and it could be you know open sea where you're selling these and in sort of like that style of marketplace it could be you know a mechanism that's built specific for the games that we're talking about but or maybe there's a uniswap pool where you have you know a fungible asset or a fungible type of asset like resources in a game that you're able to go off and and make markets for but really the it's the same way that we look at any you know digital asset that is in your MetaMask right now or an NFT that's in your MetaMask right now. It's You have ownership because you have the agency and you have the ability to sell it. It's not, and I think one of the biggest misnomers and, and um, points of confusion is the ability to say, I'm going to take this asset from one game and bring it into the digital ecosystem of another game. There, That is such high complexity 
That's um, never going to happen. That's never going to be a value proposition. I think that, um, you know, being able to, you know, use a, an NFL character and, uh, you know, Illuvium, maybe that's like kind of interesting, but like nobody really cares about that. Um, and, and so for us, ownership really just means the ability to sell these assets, uh, or, or make a market for them. Um, and, and that's how you kind of imbue the sense of ownership. Um, and it's and it's exactly the same way as you would have with DeFi tokens or any other asset. Just there's an interesting implication here that I want to get to, and then you know I bet David has a bunch of questions here. But it's like one is what does that turn a gamer into? Does that turn a gamer into like um I'm like somebody who's working? Like it, like could gamers think of this as a job? I mean, you you mentioned developing economies and developing countries, and that was certainly something that was uh, incredibly popular during the kind of the Axie. Uh, blow up days. There are stories of you know people in the Philippines who basically made their income uh, from playing Axie all day, but it, it started to like turn into like uh, a job for many people rather than rather than kind of a game. It, well, how do you guys see this this fusion? Do you think that that plays a role in things when you introduce uh, economics and the ability to kind of sell things? I mean, that starts to sound a little bit like the the real world. And like like after all, if we said before, I mean. I feel like um, maybe life is a game. Everything's a game. I mean, like, what what are we doing? I'm going and I'm collecting like um, you know you know, tokens and you know currencies and DeFi. Is that a game? Like, <laughs> I don't know. This this gets this gets complex uh, pretty quickly. But what's your take on that? Does this shift the type of of game player and the experience at all when you introduce like real world economics here? It's a, it's a similar form factor to Ethereum, like from a highly speculative economy. We've built something that's sustainable. We built kind of these mini games on chain, like whatever you want to call DeFi, whatever you want to call NFTs. Like we've built the sustainable economy and I'm sure some people do it for fun. Some people do it for work, uh, but it doesn't kind of work without both of those character types. Like you need people who enjoy it. Then you need people who are trying to, you know, get value or, or get work out of it. And again, it comes down to, can you build a sustainable economy? And you know, one way of doing that is building something around financial services. Another way of doing it is building it around entertainment and consumption of digital assets in a non-financialized way. And so for the gamer, it's basically the exact same premise as traditional gaming. You're going to play a game that you like, and maybe after everything, you know, it's not just you giving the game developers thousands of dollars. Maybe you get something in return. And you can make money on a micro level off of the assets that you've generated. And at a macro level, if you want to buy the token of the game, it's akin to owning a share of, of, a, of a stock. Like it, it, you get a direct upside participation in the game. That's pretty interesting. For developers, it's a different proposition. IDFA, which is the Apple retargeting of ads, which drove most of the business models of free-to-play game developers, that's been killed as of last year. Most gaming studios saw their revenue trend down 30 to 40%. And there's more competition than ever because these games are easier and easier to build. So you need some sort of new monetization, even if you can kind of stick with your existing IP, which is what you're seeing a lot of game developers in Asia do. Crypto is just the best monetization known to man. If you can earn, you know, 2% on every fungible token transaction, on every NFT transaction, like Immutable or like uh, Alluvium does, like that gives you a whole different vector for not only monetization, but redistribution via token to the community. And, you know, like when you get to the point of like finger pointing saying, you know, those aren't real gamers. Those are just people that are like working. That to me is like an immediate indication of like, okay, we're doing something right. Um, and the initial player base is going to be 
people from India, people from Asia, people from Africa, Eastern Europe, like you go in these discords, those are the people. And that's fine. And that'll be kind of the initial, like if you think of it as like labor, if they're like working or if they're enjoying it, those are gonna be the first people to play it, but they're gonna be the earliest participants as well. And I think that's kind of beautiful that in no other gaming fa function, like are you able to partake in the actual game success? Uh, and this is hopefully something that's a bit more egalitarian. The, the only thing I'd add um, is that I think, you know, in the 2021 era of Web3 gaming, the original sin was that speculation was basically the only thing that you had. And I think that speculation is a necessary component, but it needs to be balanced with a fun to play ecosystem, high quality games, uh, whether that's, you know, an alluvium type AAA quality or just something that's really engaging and addicting in, in the way that most digital games are. But the other element, which I think we haven't really touched on is, is it really hard to win? And if you have the ability to have it be really high, really deep in terms of how far you could take it and how far you can go, that's going to make it a game of skill or at least closer to skill. And that's where you start to see all of these variables start to coincide in a way that we just haven't seen yet. And, and so, you know, we've only seen one aspect, which is speculation, and, and I'm excited for the others. Let, let, me ask, let me ask you guys a question, David and Ryan. What's mm -hmm. the best argument against crypto gaming? Oh God, you're asking crypto bulls to argue against crypto stuff. Um, <laughs> the like, best argument like, against crypto gaming is, well, I could give you an answer in a, in a variety of different respects. Like, A, we haven't even figured out like wallets yet, like smart contract wallets, account abstraction wallets. Like, uh, but I guess you could route around that. Just like, okay, you just have a centralized wallet, do all that stuff for you. And then all of it, and then like, then you can take assets later. Um, the best argument I, I would say is going to be something along the lines of uh, crypto gaming is not uh, is all going to be zero sum because somebody if if somebody's making money right, which means somebody else is losing money, uh, which means like how do you really incentivize that? Like we're or, or like there's no really like flywheel there if it's a zero sum game. That that'll be that's my wait argument. wait wait let let me address that one. Okay, so, cool. Uh, cool. Ethereum has gone from, you know, what, 50 cents to whatever it is today, $2,000. Right. Yeah, yeah. Is that zero sum or not? Sure. Okay. So let's, let's go back to Alluvium. How, so how do I play Alluvium and do I need to deposit money first? Nope. You can, you can just okay. mine. You can mine. You, not even like ETH where you had to buy it. Okay. So I can enter the game and it's like some sort of like I get some sort of like tutorial, like yep. my, like wooden shield and wooden sword, and then I like it can start and then but then how do I get money? You can craft things together, you can create new assets, you can sell them, you can partake in in-game actions that earn you the native currency of the game. Like there's a variety of ways to bootstrap your account without actually putting money in. Okay. In particular, in particular, what that means is you run around in the overworld, the ecosystem, mm -hmm. and you could c collect or catch alluvials. The alluvials are the characters, kind of like Pokemon, if you think of it that way. The other entry point is if you have, if you play uh, Arena or if you play uh, X, which is their city builder game, you can actually just start a city, start farming resources, and just sell those resources in the ecosystem to earn enough, you know, capital to be able to go off and buy an alluvial. So there's multiple okay, ways. Okay, so of I can just sell this stuff, but someone's buying them. Why? Why are people buying them so they can just get ahead? Because you need those resources to be able to play the overworld game at a higher level. Okay, so like, okay, so if there's going to be an economy, and like this is this is also true for games, but before there's financial assets in the games, uh, everyone is just like, I'm I play Overwatch so I can win and feel momentarily good about that with the dopamine. 
when there's finance, when there's financial assets like that, oh, it's really ups the ante of why people are playing the game. And like some people are going to win and it's going to be the same, like well-capitalized entities, well-capitalized players are going to win more than less well-capitalized players because they have the advantage of capital. And so it doesn't like capital just centralize over time and winners, winners, like it's like poker, right? Like all of the, the small fry come to the table and the big sharks like eat up all the f- small fry. And like this- you, you could buy your way in, right? Like I can- well, you, you buy your way in, but like the skilled people end up taking all the money all the time. And then it's not fun because all the small fries keep having to shovel out money over and over and over again to play the game. I, I would argue that what you're describing is precisely the issue of a speculation only game. You have to have a good economy design that doesn't allow people to pay to win. It maybe means that you're able to pay to, for instance, in Alluvium, if you want to pay for something, the, the main use of paying for things is to travel faster through the world. Mm. And, and it's like taking the train versus walking there. Mm. And, and that, that's kind of one of their core economic principles that I think is unique. And we just haven't seen those examples yet. But yes, I agree. If you're, in the way that you're describing it, if you can just buy your way in and buy your way to the, to the victory podium, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter. It's not a game. It's not fun. Okay, so there's there's like the PVE element, like the player versus environment element, and then there's PVP, player versus player. And yep. if we keep the monetization to uh, increase your odds of winning versus the environment, we're okay with that? Um, your ability to win? Just well, in, in the uh, player versus environment uh, domain. I mean, I think that's okay. Like, you have to have some function for paying for things at some point. And travel is not even in Web3 games. It's the most common thing that you're, you're right. paying for. But also look at like Boom Beach, for instance. Okay, you could either spend time and you could wait for things to, to reset for you to get more ammunition or you know, more lives, whatever it may be. Or you could just pay you know, $4.99 to Apple to be able to upgrade immediately and not have to wait 24 hours for that to reset. Like That, there, is, there zero are, sum. that is zero sum. totally but but those are the types of monetization elements that exist in mobile mobile gaming and i think you know we will start to see and test what these different monetization elements are such that you have a sustainable game game economy that we haven't seen yet in a game can can i throw out some other um to your questions fans so um what about this the the idea that um crypto can often collapse. I worry about this about DeFi, uh, quite frankly, at some level to Ponzi and you know speculation. Right? So you have these big boom busts or you have somebody who is willing to create a game that, that plays the short-term kind of like games, essentially. And you have these like Axie style, it runs up into the billions and then it just like collapses. And just like there's something about human nature and speculation and tokens and prices that just like ruins things and the whiplash is like too harsh right because humans you know we go this massive run-up we're all feeling great and so many people buy the top and they're um you know their their experience net their net promoter score is really low because they purchased an asset that they thought was going to do well and it lost like 99 percent. they're very dissatisfied with this what about this? The temptation of speculation, maybe let's say the temptation of ponzification of pyramid schemeization. Like maybe that's a thing that could hold this whole crypto gaming thing back. What do you think about this? I mean, people will do that. 
people will start outright gaming Ponzi's. Um, I think they might do well for a time, but they won't last, you know, for much longer than that. You'll also have people who build really good games and have really good economic flywheels. And maybe there's a couple issues along the way, but it's not zero sum. You're growing the pie and you're distributing it to people who are playing your game. Um, and so there will be both. I also think like if you if you look at the traditional gaming industry, especially like mobile games, there's people who spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on Candy Crush and, you know, things like that in, in the traditional free to play space. It's pretty sad, honestly. It's just kind of like they're pay pigging for like these gigantic mobile gaming companies. And so, you know, when you're starting from that position, almost anything is better than it. And sure, there might be some creative destruction as we go from good games to bad games or vice versa. But like, I, I guess my point with this question was like, there's no universal rule that says that we can't do this. Um, and I think you just kind of need to bet on like entrepreneurs and innovators who really believe. And like, we don't need to kind of just like, just believe for much longer. Like we're going to have proof points in the next couple months. So I think we'll hopefully have better arguments in a, in a couple of months. But right now, I, I don't think there's like anything that's super convincing to me about like, why isn't this possible? Mm. Like there's no I, rule of like physics that says it's not. Sure. So one additional uh, variable here, I think, you know, what's implied with all of these different questions is that you're, you're assuming that people are having to like pay a substantial amount of money just to enter into these game ecosystems. And I think most of the smart game developers recognize that that's just never going to happen. And maybe you buy a subscription or a license in the same way that you would a digital game today. Maybe it costs 20 bucks for the, for a season type thing, but it's not, it's not going to be a situation where you're paying $10,000 for an Axie and then it goes down to $5 and everybody feels terrible and MPS is negative. The, the sentiment here is games are now coming to the realization that you ha it has to be free to start. You, ha you have to be able to have monetization elements that you be able to earn your way to, but you could also pay for to expedite. And those are kind of the new norms that people are kind of circling around. Game developers are circ circling around, which I, I think is fundamentally different from anything you know that existed in 2021. Um, where speculation, once again, was the overriding variable. So uh, to Vance's point, I, I think you know this stuff is happening like literally tomorrow and for the next few months. Um, so I, I think we're just going to see a ton more shots on roll. MetaMask Portfolio is your one-stop shop to navigate the world of DeFi. And now bridging seamlessly across networks doesn't have to be so daunting anymore. With competitive rates and convenient routes, MetaMask Portfolio's bridge feature lets you easily move your tokens from chain to chain using popular layer one and layer two networks. And all you have to do is select the network you want to bridge from and where you want your tokens to go. From there, MetaMask vets and curates the different bridging platforms to find the most decentralized, accessible, and reliable bridges for you. To tap into the hottest opportunities in crypto, you need to be able to plug into a variety of networks and nobody makes that easier than MetaMask Portfolio. Instead of searching endlessly through the world of bridge options, click the bridge button on your MetaMask extension or head over to metamask.io slash portfolio to get started. Arbitrum is the leading Ethereum scaling solution that is home to hundreds of decentralized applications. Arbitrum's technology allows you to interact with Ethereum at scale with low fees and faster transactions. Arbitrum has the leading DeFi ecosystem, strong infrastructure options, flourishing NFTs, and is quickly becoming the Web3 gaming hub. Explore the ecosystem at portal.arbitrum.io. Are you looking to permissionlessly launch your own Arbitrum Orbit chain? Arbitrum Orbit allows anyone to utilize Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own 
orbit chain, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. Whether you are a developer, an enterprise, or a user, Arbitrum Orbit lets you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Visit Arbitrum.io and get your journey started in one of the largest Ethereum communities. Celo is the mobile-first, EVM-compatible, carbon-negative blockchain built for the real world. And now, something big is happening. Introducing the Celo Layer 2. It's a game-changing proposal that's going to bring Celo's rapidly growing ecosystem home to Ethereum. Vitalik has shared his excitement for the Celo Layer 2 on the Celo forum. So has Ben Jones from Optimism. But why? The Celo Layer 2 will bring huge advantages like a decentralized sequencer, off-chain data availability, and one block finality. What does all that mean? Rock-solid security, a trustless bridge to Ethereum, and more real world use cases for Ethereum without compromise. And real world adoption is happening. Active addresses on Celo have grown over 500% in the last six months. With the Celo Layer 2, gas fees will stay low and you can even pay for gas using ERC20 tokens. But Celo is a community governed protocol. This means that Celo needs you to weigh in and make your voice heard. Join the conversation in the Celo forum. Follow at Celo.org on Twitter and visit Celo.org to shape the future of Ethereum. I think my the big questions I have about crypto gaming is more about just like the scope of the success, not whether or not it's real or not. It's more like how how far does that realness take it? Because you, you could have like the very, very bullish scenario versus the very, very bearish scenario. For example, like maybe the most bearish scenario is something like, well, we have um, online like casinos, right? Like li little casinos like uh, you know, Texas Hold'em, Blackjack. Mm -hmm. And then they also take like Bitcoin or maybe stable coins too. And those are like, those are games and they take crypto payments. And so like we're starting to enter, we're starting to combine these primitives. And then there's on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which is like something like uh, Ready Player One, which is like a straight metaverse and there's digital currencies and there's digital artifacts and there's digital assets and everything is an NFT, everything is on chain. Uh, and then there's like different stops along these visions, right? You have like, okay, maybe you have a Fortnite except the skins are NFTs, which is still like asset light, I would say. Or there's like... Um, we revitalize the Diablo 3 auction house and you discover in-house items, except those are NFTs and you can sell those now for, you know, a currency on Ethereum that can go to Uniswap. And we're, now we're starting to get pretty heavy. Uh, so I guess like the real vision is, or the real question is like, where along this spectrum do we really end up? And can we really get all the way to the full, like ready player one fully like, like, simulated economy except it's not simulated because it's real and it's in the metaverse like where so, where do we end up here uh, let, let me say this i with every new technology platform for games you've had a new dominant game model that takes over and you know when it was uh you know console based you, you had you know the depth of diablo and first person shooters and things that required real high you know technical requirements to be able to play those games um you know when you had mobile it became fast casual and you know that was sort of the the dominant game mode. We don't yet know what the dominant game mode will be. And you know th something we talked about with you know the game developers we talked to on the regular is like what's going to be that Candy Crush moment where it's like boom, okay, we now see it. Everybody now has the playbook. That's how it's going to work. You know, one of the th theses that at least I have is and um, something that we haven't talked about yet is UGC being a major component of Web three gaming where it's not you going in and saying, I've earned this resource or I've you know got this. 
I now have ownership over it. I, I can sell it. What if you're in there in the d- digital ecosystem creating something, creating a template that other people may want to use in that same game, and then you are able to monetize that yourself? You know, you own the template. People can buy it. You know, those are great ways that I think you just haven't seen in a, a, as a dominant game model yet. But we're starting to see a ton of those types of games employ UGC elements and monetization through UGC elements, um, that, that would be unique. And, and so that is, is one possible path for Web3 gaming that we haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing I'll say is like, the, you know, to your point of like, if it works, how big does it get? I think that's when you need to kind of rely on the data that we have. And there's not a ton of it, but Axie had more daily fees than Ethereum in the last bull run for a period of months. It had the most users of any chain. You know, it's still... Ronin at least still has, you know, almost as many as like the lower L2 blockchains. So like these things are considerable size. Um, And the token itself, you know, obviously didn't stay there for a long time, but it was a $40 billion FTV outcome. Like these things are huge. Forty billion dollars. Yeah, these things yeah, are. Yeah, but hang on. I want. I want to. I want to throw a flag there because, like, why were the fees paid? Well, because the token pumped and people could afford the fees because the token was very, very highly priced because it was a speculative, speculative mania. So, in the final equilibrium of crypto gaming, we can't expect high fees to be paid just because, like, these assets have these speculative premiums. I mean, like, look. This is the data that we have. You know, it's not the data that we would want. And it what it tells you is that these things get quite large when they get going and there's a reflexive aspect to them. And so that's kind of like the backwards looking data. And then the data that we have right now is all the playtest data that's coming in on these games. And like almost unanimously, the retention is like 40, 50% higher than traditional games. Like people come back because they know that they own something. It's like not, you know, the most like big brain explanation, but the aspects of ownership are compelling to people in a way that represents in the data. And so, you know, I feel more, not less confident as the, as the playtest data comes in, whether or not the game of the future manifests in a similar way to Axie to your point, I don't think they're going to be paying like crazy ETH gas fees, but like the monetization schemes that these things have is considerable. You know, Alluvium is taking 2% of all fungible and non-fungible transactions. Think about if this gets to be the size of OpenSea in terms of just like transactions. And I think that's like kind of where we think things are going to go. I think the NFT PFP market, other than like punks and fidenzas and things like that, I think that's pretty much done. What I, what I do think, what I do think is coming, you know, and going to be a lot bigger are in game asset NFTs. And if you think about like the theses that were thrown around back in the day of like the unbundling of these NFT marketplaces, it hasn't really happened because there's been nothing to unbundle other than maybe like the derivative side with Blur and, you know, the spot side with OpenSea, we're now going to see just like gaming NFTs be their own thing. And it's not going to be monetized by some third-party NFT marketplace. It's going to be monetized by the game itself. And so like you've got the game, but you've also got like this 2% thing that's attached to it that imagine if that starts getting going and you start redistributing to token holders and it feeds on itself. You can see how it would become quite big. Yes, I can see how it can become quite big. And if that 2% is real and all of these things do become as as large as we hope that they are going to become, uh, you are going to then be faced with some extra obstacles. Uh, The smaller of the two is going to be like the distribution platforms, the Steam, Mm -hmm. Epic Game Store, iOS Store, which they're going to want their fee. They're going to want their tax. You know know who else is going to want their tax? The tax man. 
<laughs> the the actual tax man. Uh, and so we're going to start to get into like regulatory conversations as well. How, how do you guys navigate these conversations? Uh, not tax advice, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, anytime you earn income, you owe the taxes on that. Yeah, so, but what uh, about little Jimmy, who's eight years old, who just downloaded a game, who doesn't know a damn thing about taxes? He's got it. He's got an item drop, and it's a taxable event that he's got to file. Right. right? It's like yeah. you can see how this is weird. Jimmy can fend for himself, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, I'm trying to. So like the iOS, the the iOS point is a good one. Um, so a lot of the games that we see start off as, you know, no crypto in the iOS app store. Um, and then if you own assets and you want to sell them, then you transfer them to a blockchain. Mm -hmm. And that's a way to one, play nice with Apple, but two, you know, you can have like this graduating onboarding funnel where you say like, cool, you, you now own the asset in the game. You want to sell, you want to do different things. We're going to take you on chain, a place that is devoid of the iOS tax man. Well, um, and, and just to, to clarify, if you are onboarding via a mobile device and you're buying something and Apple has already come out and suggested that this is the path that they're going to, to do with their guidelines for iOS app store transactions, you're going to pay 30%. The developer is going to pay 30% to Apple. Apple's exceedingly happy about this. They'll start promoting NFT based games. If you're going to be buying a $10 NFT in game, you're going to have, you know, the developer's going to get $7 basically, but you're still paying $10. And what happens afterwards is you move outside. There's no second, there probably won't be secondary marketplaces within, you know, iOS app store uh, ecosystems, but you're still going to have that same, once again, passport and or connective wallet that uh, that connects your mobile device and your web device. And the web will be where you have that secondary market transaction and everything will live on chain. Wait, so are you guys saying we just we, we just have a backdoor here? We just have a loophole here? We're just we just like we just go on chain. Okay. So so just leave. basically the game is in Steam or loophole. it's in Epic or it's in <laughs> iOS, right? So like so like it's deployed there, but mm -hmm. we're not exposing any of the kind of the like DeFi type economics inside of that wrapper you just hit a button and you like export off chain when right. you want to sell all your assets and that's just our simple loophole <laughs> like checkmate yeah. it's that it's like you don't it's, it's, apple apple hasn't come out and said whether or not they will allow any of the DeFi elements can you sell it via uniswap you know contract or pool um assume that they won't allow that type of stuff but yes this is the way that most games are thinking about integrating both mo bo both mobile and web experiences i mean that seems like it could be defensible here right because like how how would apple argue that you can't export your own like metadata off like you know off off their platform it seems that that would be a well because pretty... ryan their metadata has never been worth money before. <laughs> I, I think you can come up with like creative reasons as to why it won't work, but right now it works. Like there are games that do this. There's also people who are experimenting with PWAs and things of that nature. Yeah. Like there's there's a few different ways you can skin this cat. Okay. But so, so you guys aren't very worried about the gatekeeping of kind of the you know the gaming platforms at all at all. Across the ages, uh, and this this data was in in France specific, which is where they started. Uh, was a top five game for the last two months. And it's an NFT-based game. 
Okay, so to go back to David's question, there's another class of gatekeeper. We touched upon it with the tax man and whatever. Little Jimmy's going to have to um, download some software to help him figure out his taxes. You know, he'll, he'll be 1099. <laughs> 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 Little Jimmy's going to have quite the education. Uh, but there, there's another class of uh, regulators out there, and this is the, kind of the SEC Gary Gensler uh, class. And right now, at least in the U.S., you know, Gary can't tell us whether a Pokemon card, uh, if it's tokenized, is a security or not. Does this uh, put a foil, throw throw a wrench into the works here? Uh, are we going to have a problem with regulators on the crypto gaming side? Pack it up. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, they're going to, how, how it's manifested in practice has been that the U.S. game developers have gotten really gun shy. Like, they don't want to launch tokens. They don't want to launch nfts unless it's like a hundred percent chance of them being compliant but that's just left this door open for all the international developers who have frankly better regulation countries and i hope our country gets there in time as well i think it will but people aren't stopping you know they're not like ooh, sounds like gary Gensler doesn't like this <laughs> and we, and we Poten- potentially we don't even or, have an answer yeah, we don't even know right <laughs> Like there's a certain subset of people that will stop and those prob- people probably should not be entrepreneurs, but like nobody really cares. <laughs> so Sorry, d- Gary. Does this get, so this gets solved through jurisdictional arbitrage, right? Like if for a period of time, the US is just very harsh and there's not clarity, then maybe less game development happens in the US and just escapes outside of the US. And then the US realizes, you know, our population wants access to these games and they have to update. Is, is that how this plays out in your mind? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. 75% of the games that we talk to, the number one jurisdiction or the number one region that they're targeting from a gameplay standpoint is Asia or Southeast Asia. Really? Not even in it, Europe, not, not the US? Europe more so. The U.S. is yeah. like kind of an afterthought. Is this reflected because of regulation specifically? Because of U.S. Hostility? No, no. It's because I mean, look, the That's biggest the games are the biggest games in Asia are pay to win games. You pay right. five dollars more, you win the game. Congratulations. Asia has no problem with this conceptually. <laughs> America has a huge problem with this conceptually, and so it's like you know, wait, I, I pay, think, what's a pay to win game? That's just like gambling so like, right that's like a casino is a pay-to-win game right but it's or not no? like you're gambling against anyone else so like a good example of how this does not fly in the u.s is the uh, latest nba 2k update where you you can pay to enhance your player people threw a hissy fit over this on the internet forums and just like you know it's not fair because it's not fair yeah people stamping their feet it's not fair people in asia don't care about this and so <laughs> look it may sound strange it may sound like a different mental model but it's like that to me is like a very good sign mm-hmm. of there's a market that's largely unseen for what we're trying to build that isn't really comparable to what exists today, but that could be massive. And like if Axie Infinity can be a 40 billion FTB outcome with only Southeast Asian players, guess where everyone's going to go? Like it's like, you know, it's sad that people are not going to target the US. I do think that is changing as the quality of game increases. Like most of the Alluvium playtesters are western oriented um just from like perusing the discord but that's certainly not who they're targeting Mm -hmm. the the other the other thing i'd add too is um just in terms of technology uh obviously android heavy in all of those regions 
um, and Android just has a much more open ecosystem for games mm. and gameplay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to turn the conversation to chains, games and chains. Uh, so like the Ethereum, I think, stance towards games that, oh, every single game is going to want their own chain. Like give game developers the sovereignty and the control that they have over the game, over the chain that their assets run on. Um, the Solana narrative is probably something along the lines of games need maximum amount of scale. Uh, the Avalanche narrative, of, of which I know games and Avalanche for some reason go together, is probably something similar to the Solana narrative. I don't really know. Hopefully you can tell me. Uh, but just like what what do game devs, crypto game devs think about the chains that they're building on? Like, How do we think about these things? Uh, <laughs> There's a really interesting stat, which is of the games that are still in development, that we've talked to or some of our investor investments um, are partnered with um, something along the lines of like 40 to 50% of the games that are building games currently have not even chosen a blockchain yet. doesn't matter. Really? And it doesn't really matter to them. What really matters to them is throughput, therefore cost and where assets are uh, or users are. Um, and so where you know that starts to aggregate is whoever has the lowest cost per transaction is going to be something that's really viable for games. But you also have to be able to have people. One thing we haven't talked about yet is there's this massive industry in the traditional games industry or in traditional games for user acquisition. You know, it costs tens of millions of dollars to develop these games. Well, it also costs tens of millions of dollars to market these games, to have them break through, have them actually get attention from from the game players that they want. And that is something that just hasn't even been around yet. I mean, historically within DeFi, this has been like, you know, farming or, you know, if if you're in discords, you kind of have to be in the know. Um, But what we're talking about attracting here is people who are not in these, you know, Web3 native discords not people who are web3 native per se you know these are people who want to play the game because it looks interesting and then you know you you kind of come for the game and then you stay for the for the ownership and that is a totally different model that we just haven't really seen yet and so you know does it really matter where these net new users are going to be from a blockchain perspective not as much as it does you know from a defi perspective where where really security and and like tvl are are kind of the core metrics I think there still is like the EVM versus everyone else dynamic. And I would still say that 90% of games we see are building on some form of the EVM. Um, Most of them, frankly, on IMX, uh, just because they're like oriented and focused towards that. And like, just to give you an example of like where the the ecosystem stands today. So Polygon signed a partnership with IMX um, that basically makes IMX like the default gaming super chain of their network. But by um, the way, IMX is immutable. We talked about immutable. Yeah, it's immutable conversation. Yeah. yeah, same thing. Okay. Um, and IMX has like you know they're extraordinarily well resourced. They've got like two hundred and fifty million of cash. They've got like you know more than six hundred or seven hundred million dollars of their own tokens on their balance sheet, and it's structured as an equity company. So they have like a large degree of discretion over like how and when grants are given out. Um, and they're able to win a lot of game developers just because like ga- like capital for games is so thin right now that being able to offer like an integrated blockchain, a passport solution that's the UI layer, um, and some grants and some capital to build a game, it's like pretty compelling. Solana, we've seen less games go to recently, um, just since like the foundation has kind of like geared down a little bit on that, just like from resourcing. Uh, it's also just like you're on your own island. There's no, 
base chain that's adjacent to you with a shit ton of users or like ethel one that you can do interesting like you know pack drops or things like parallel has been doing um so that's definitely happening and then you have kind of like a string of like also rands that are giving out small chunkier grants but like instead of having like 200 games like imx has they've got like three and gaming like as we all know is like a shots on goal business because you never know what's going to hit and it's a power law distribution when it does so it's still the EVMs game. 90% of games are building on the EVM. I would say like Immutable is probably the one that's been the most focused and concentrated and has won the most. And if you you know flash forward a year, like does this look different? It does because once you start to have, you know, say I, Immutable gets like a ton of users on their chain, like that's just another value prop. Like you want to launch on a chain with a shitload of gaming users that are willing to try your product, try IMX. And so like, once the flywheel starts spinning, the moats are going to build. And I think that is um, kind of the next phase of like, say, say Alluvium works and there's like, you know, 50 million players. Guess where everyone's going to want to launch on Immutable, where they are. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the but Immutable is uh, like kind of one uh, piece of real estate for everyone to share. What I didn't hear is any sort of conversation about one, one chain per game, or at least when that chain that game hits scale, that they might be interested in having their own domicile, having their own sovereign network. Maybe it's just too early for these conversations. We'll see when that game gets that large. Uh, maybe that's that your response. They exactly. will, you know, but that's probably like three or four years down the line. And it may even be still within the same like IMX or Polygon or whatever ecosystem. Right. But I think like the job to be done right now is like build successful games. Once, you know, we've already seen that like on a long enough time horizon, everyone wants to launch their own L2. I'm sure that will happen right. here too. Um, but like, we're just not in that phase of the game quite yet. Okay. Okay. Can, can you guys, um, th this was another narrative that started to kick off in the gaming, like crypto gaming world in 2021, which is like the traditional gaming studios are coming, right? It's just kind of like the herd is coming uh, type of uh, riff. I think. Uh, I don't think they're coming. I think okay. <laughs> tell me about that. I mean, there's so, some. There's some. There's I like... heard there was like maybe two weeks ago, Lance, maybe it was uh, the uh, Roblox uh, CEO, and he said something to the effect of, hey, you know, it might make sense to do something on Roblox, like an NFT. He actually used the, the uh, NFT word. Uh, so, like, I is, but you don't think they're coming at all? Is that not going to be a, a tailwind for crypto gaming that traditional studios start to play around with immutable and deploying assets and Fortnite skins? You know, like that was the thing in 2021. It's, it's, it's kind of like, um, like when Netflix was first coming up, like it was like this streaming enabled player. They were faster. They were smarter. They had more data. They used all the new technology to their advantage and they leapfrogged everyone else. And then you had HBO Max that was trying to launch their own streaming service for like 10 years. And they like launched it once half-assed. They like pulled it back. At one point they had HBO Go and HBO Max. They like pulled that back. They rebranded as Max. Like they're trying to like, you know, compete with all the major streaming players, but they're not even like a tenth of the scale. The people who actually use this technology from first principles versus like we're thinking about an NFT. You know, what do you think? It's just like, you know, it's like worlds of difference. So I think it's um, it's the innovator's dilemma always. Uh, and the entrepreneurs who they're competing against are just like not sleeping. So you know, it's we, like... We don't need trad gaming then. We, we just don't no. even need them. I mean, look at look at the, the past platform shift of, you know, desktop or console to mobile. Hmm. You know, the biggest mobile-based game developers are not the biggest developers of games from previous platforms either. Hmm. 
You know, it's, it's not the Ubisofts. It's not, you know, the Epic's. Sure, they have mobile games, but it took them so long because for them it was, how are we going to be able to fit this Call of Duty game, this first-person shooter onto a mobile device? Like, it's just, we're going to have to degrade the service so much. And to Vance's point, that's the classic innovator's dilemma problem. You have to start from the ground up with the new platform, and that's what blockchains represent. It maybe eventually the Ubisofts or the Kings of the World or you know even the Zingas, the Take Twos, they're going to be able to build something that's on chain or integrates NFTs. But I think they're going to have to be shown what that playbook is, and it's going to have to be not just one instance of it. It's going to have to be like we hit them over the head twenty times before they start to get the picture, and and we haven't even started yet. You know, we haven't hit that Candy Crush moment. So far, we've been talking about games that are sort of um, using the blockchain for sort of a, the property rights type use case. And if that sounds so, you know, too you pie in the sky, I'm just basically saying the assets, whether it's a token, a coin of some sort, or it's a, an NFT, an item, a skin or something like this, they're all registered on chain. But the rest of the game is just on like traditional you know, gaming servers in an AWS server somewhere or something like this. There has been another, uh, I guess, theme that is sort of very indie right now. And actually, David's been on the frontier of exploring this a bit more, which is like uh, fully on-chain games. I don't know if, David, maybe maybe you should give like an explainer of this, not for, for Michael and Vance, but for Bankless listeners uh, to pose the question of like, what do you guys think about this? But what's a fully on-chain game, David? The way I would define it is just like the state of the game is derived from data that's held on-chain. So like uh, when you are looking at your computer screen and you're looking at some sort of visual image of that, it's not coming from a server that is being served to you by like Activision Blizzard. That data of how it's being displayed to you is coming from reading a blockchain. Uh, and so fully on-chain game, like the physics are on-chain, the assets are on-chain, the moves are on-chain, like everything is on-chain. So it's actually just like the entire game logic. We talk about DeFi is putting like business logic on-chain. Uh, fully on chains are like all gaming logic exists on chain, uh, which is a completely different endeavor than just like building a game with some assets in it. Yeah, what do you guys think of this? Is this sci-fi? Is this uh, near term at all? Are you, are you guys looking at this at all? We've looked at a couple of different. I mean, Dark Forest is is kind of like the mm-hmm. the start of this concept. Right. Um, you know, Dark Forest took down X die because of the amount of <laughs> yeah. throughput that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <it>. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> like, Sorry. Th- this this uh you're always going to be battling with a throughput problem. And mm-hmm. I think it could be interesting to have things that, you know, game types or game models that don't necessarily need synchronous throughput as, you know, a, a core component to make it a fun to play game. Maybe this is like a turn-based game or something that, you know, you kind of, you make your play and then you wait for other people to make theirs. Like there's, there are game models that I think could work. Uh, I also think with infrastructure getting faster and cheaper and better, you know, the cost of using, you know, uh, putting something fully on chain is is going to go down as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, there could be other things that come up, but frankly, this is it's not sci-fi, but I, I think this is probably like way further out than you know the traditional game types that are going to be launching soon. Strikes me as like a little bit like Urbit esque, hmm. like we all need self-sovereign servers because reasons. <laughs> like you know you, you never like fully get to like the why um and i think why we're bullish on gaming is like a different reason than you know most people are bullish on on-chain games we're bullish gaming because there's billions of people who play it and they look feel and act very much like crypto people mm. and we're not that mm. far like putting it even further away from them doesn't feel like at least for us like the best path 
go into that a little bit more, Vance. Why are why are gamers like crypto people? Or how cut from the same cloth are we? I mean, have you ever hung out in a like a gaming Discord and they're all screeching at each other for you know <laughs> you really can't even interpret and they're they're on their computer, you know, they're internet people. Um, they're obsessive. They own digital items. They participate in digital economies. Like they're a lot of the nerds, David. Okay. Nerd, like, they are literally like, you know, somewhere in the genealogical tree, like they're our cousins. And so it just doesn't feel like a large lift um, to get them in here. It's a lot different than like, I don't know, say like music people. Like music people are cool. They go out, <laughs> you know, they do different things. They're not, they don't own digital assets other than something on like iTunes. Right. You know, it's just different. I mean, one other thing I'd say to that is like er almost everyone I've met in crypto has like been a gamer like previously or is a gamer now still. You played RuneScape, you played WoW, you played like so many origin stories are from that stuff, including Vitalik's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, including Metallics. Yeah, our Diablo Two, I think, is the game that Ryan yep. and I share the most, just with nostalgia and also right. with crypto memes. Oh, 100 percent. Like uh, the the cat CL120 or whatever. Like yeah. he's always streaming League. You know, like <laughs> right. pop in and watch that. He's playing that with like Ansem and like a few other crypto people. Like they are us. You know, <laughs> like it's the same thing. So let's talk about the um, let's talk about our bags for a minute. OK, so like exactly. and, and by our I mean, uh, crypto natives. So I, I feel like one of the themes lately has been we've created all of this cheap block space. Now, who's going to buy it? <laughs> right. Like and I, I'm wanting you to say that's going to be the crypto gamers in the crypto games. All of these layer twos pumping up you know, block space. Mostly it's empty block space. And in order for the economics of this entire crypto system to work and the, the promise of crypto to work, somebody actually has to want that block space, actually has to demand it. And, you know, of course, we're, we're ultra bullish on DeFi, all sorts of other use cases. But could crypto gaming be the big demand catalyst for our block space? What if uh, the 2023-2024 version of crypto gaming is maximally successful? What does that do to layer twos and block space? What does that do even to DeFi? What are the kind of the, the ripple on effects in the uh, crypto native economy, do you think? So, I mean, the biggest, uh, to your last point, I mean, the main, other than Binance, the main exchange for trading Alluvium tokens is SushiSwap on really? ETH L1. Yeah. And so, like, you know, gaming is going to benefit all the infrastructure from ETH that's getting, you know, posted for data availability and settlement to the actual DeFi primitives like SushiSwap, um, like a rising tide will lift all boats. It will be lumpy. Like Alluvium will probably have days where it's making more fees than, you know, the L2 that it's based on. Um, Immutable might have some days where like if all the games are firing, it's like the most revenue generating blockchain that exists. Hmm. Um, but generally like, a rising tide is going to lift all boats. And I'm more concerned at the margins about an ecosystem that's trying to create like a mini ETH. You know, we have like a mini DeFi protocol and like we have like smaller NFTs that are cheaper. Like, I just don't think that's like a differentiated use case of block space. Um, and it's also not the same quality as ETH. I think what you're going to need to have to fill all this block space is differentiated use cases. And so like, I'm more bullish on like a gaming chain, you know, that rolls up to an ETH chain. Uh, and I'm more bullish on like, I don't know, maybe even like an NFT specific chain that rolls up to the ETH chain. 
But like recreating mini versions of ETH, I don't think is a good use of block space. Okay, so let me just unpack what that means. When when you said SushiSwap was the the biggest um, exchange, like maybe the deepest liquidity for alluvials, which is kind of uh, mm-hmm. th- these are the assets of alluvium. Uh, they're called fungible token. Fungible tokens. Okay, so these are the tokens, the ERC twenties of the alluvium ecosystem. So how how does that work? You know, practically, it's just all the activity happens inside of the uh, mutable you know chain. And then when people want deep liquidity to actually like exchange their alluvials, then they just bridge back to like, you know, ETH L1 right now. I mean, in the future, that could be an L2 with deep liquidity. And uh, that's where they sell it. And so effectively, what's the knock-on effect of that? More consumption of block space for the Ethereum and for DeFi and, and actual use of, uh, you know, the DeFi protocols through these on-chain assets. And uh, you know that that's essentially the upside for everything in the in the crypto economy is that where we've just provided the banking financial infrastructure for all of these games, all of these on chain games that we're creating. Right, like you know, for most people, DeFi isn't something that you do. DeFi is something that facilitates something that you're doing. You know, you want to get an asset, you want to get out of an asset. It's not like you came on chain to trade DeFi. It's like you came on chain to play a game and. There's an ownership aspect of it, and a lot of it is like kind of infrastructure esque. So, you know, like I, I think about ETH, and I'm not concerned about block space demand there. Like it takes like somewhat chaotic of an afternoon to send Gui to 100 for most of the day in like a semi bull market. For most of these other L2s, like I just don't understand if you're not vertically oriented with apps, how you drive block space demand. Because it can't just be a mini version of ETH. It needs to be something that's oriented around gaming or some other consumer use case. And I think that's kind of like where we net out is that um, maybe like the generalized L2s of today are not really kind of what ends up being powerful tomorrow. It's like value capture, especially in this space, is so fleeting where OpenSea can be worth $13.5 billion one day. And then, you know, a year later, it's worth, you know, 900 million or whatever it's worth today on secondaries. I think you could see some of that happen with, you know, the abundance of L2s that we have today. Only thing I'd add um, is that I I think we're also just sort of discounting the amount of scale that successful games have. And, you know, one example is a game um, that we've been talking to and they did their initial mint of sort of just like, badges as nfts that if you're in the discord or if you're participating in the ecosystem you you get one of these nfts and it grants you access to like the alpha or the beta product as they start testing new features and things that mint alone was 40 percent of all transactions in march of this year on polygon and and that that's just one game that hasn't even launched yet and and so you know you think about the scale of like something that just hits you know a million or a couple million of monthly active users that's probably probably more activity than we've seen on chain yet in any of the markets that we've been in over the last few years can i ask you guys a question so so how many gamers are there worldwide right now Three billion, billion. Billion. Three billion play billion 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 there's like billion. eight billion, billion. people yeah three billion are gamers Hang on. Three, no, no, no. Does three Candy billion, Crush count? Three, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Three, <laughs> no, three, three billion console games. <laughs> three billion people play a digital <laughs> game every game. single month. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there's three billion. Okay. Yep. Yes. What what portion of those three billion own crypto do you think? 
I don't know if you if there was a Venn diagram, I'm not sure how much those circles would intersect, but like crypto is first and foremost a demographic and geographic phenomenon. What, it's more what? popular with young people. It's more popular in developing countries than it is in developed countries. And, so and like I'm wondering if in addition to block space consumption and DeFi consumption, all of these things is like or finally, and maybe this is a recycled 2021 narrative. And by the way, all the 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 good narratives do come true in the fullness of time. Okay, but oh, yeah. like the best narratives are multi-cycle. Narratives. <laughs> That's right. Well said. <laughs> so we got three billion gamers, and their first experience with crypto is not like buying Bitcoin or Ether, like we all thought. We, you know, hard money, guys. Come on, they don't care about that. It's they've just played a fantastic game, and now they see the value of crypto because they've just you know, mined a bunch of alluviums. Sorry, mining is probably the, the wrong term, but uh, they've played hard to earn these alluviums and now they're, they're selling it in crypto. And that turns them on to, oh, what is this asset called Ether, right? And like, do they become net buyers of that? I mean, could <laughs> am I getting too bullish there? Or do you think this is really an onboarding mechanism that we haven't tapped into fully yet and and could actually pump our assets guys <laughs> bring it home there we go <laughs> just wondering uh my, my guess is that in a year or two's time with uh, you know what's to be hundreds of of games launching we're gonna have a hundred million people net new people into the web3 ecosystem with private key ownership whether or not they know it i think doesn't really matter you're gonna have a hundred million people on chain in a few years time most of that's gonna be driven by games okay well let's close this out guys this has been a fantastic tour you've gotten me excited about crypto games again and i haven't felt this excitement in a good uh, 18 months or so I, I would say i'm pretty excited so <laughs> when's the last time you played a game ryan uh it's been a while david <laughs> let's not get it more than 18 I, months i, I have fond memories <laughs> 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 I like that, you know, I got to pass the torch to a, a new generation of gamers mm. here. But um, so we mentioned Alluvium, right? And that's coming out um, imminently. Is it available right now? Like, tell us about tomorrow. the games tomorrow. Okay. So at the time of recording. Today is the, the 27th of November. Yeah. So yes. we'll get this out soon. So it'll be out by the time you guys are hearing this episode. And so is that the game, if you were to pick one game for people to get started, that that showcases the glory of, of crypto gaming for crypto natives now? Would it be Alluvium? They should go check that out. Yeah. Go check it out. It's the first one that's launching that's like, you know, the of the major crypto games, I would say there's like maybe two or three of those. Um, and then there's kind of a whole long tail, but like, if you really want something that's high fidelity, that looks amazing, it's Alluvium. It's Alluvium. Do you need a GPU? No. Oh, <laughs> yes, <Okay>. you do. <laughs> yeah, for some versions of the game you do. Yeah. For the, yeah. for the arena. Depend, depends on which game you're playing, yeah. but you okay. need to play it on a computer. Okay. Okay. So that's the game. And then, uh, as far as you know, platforms out there that are, that are kind of crypto gaming platforms, immutable, is that, is that kind of the biggest one? Are they you know, winning the most market share at this point? I would, I would say that it definitely seems to be the case so far. Um, but once again, Alluvium is built on immutable. I think that's the start of when we see these games launch and where they aggregate. Um, but immutable seems to have all the technology pieces that we've been missing the last few years. There we go, guys. Cool. All right. Well, it's an exciting wow. time to be in crypto, crypto gaming, leading into uh, 2024. We, uh, we're going to do it this time, everybody. So, uh, Michael, Vance, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. 
Thanks, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bankless Nation, if you want to dip into the archive and hear what we were thinking about crypto gaming about 18 to 24 months ago, we'll include a list of previous <laughs> episodes for you. I think My a lot of those, far we've come. Those, those concepts are a multi-cycle, right, Vance? Uh, I'm pretty exactly. sure. Exactly. <laughs> 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 Got to end with this, of course, risks and disclaimers. Uh, none of this has been financial advice, neither crypto financial advice nor gaming financial advice. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us in the bankless journey. Thanks.